Sennheiser has been continuously setting trends in the audio industry. Wherever people care passionately about recording, transmitting, or playing sound, Sennheiser will be there. Artists, disc jockeys, scientists, sound technicians, or demanding music lovers, the Sennheiser name always stands for premium products, headphones, microphones, and all-around audio solutions. The ultimate in sound quality. Sennheiser. It's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host. You know, we grow up and we're not sure how to talk sometimes as far as appropriately. And do we get the most out of language, out of our words? We watch television and film and we get a lot out of that. But you're going to learn today how to speak uh, persuasively. We have uh, Milan and the, the last name I'm going to get wrong, but uh, Milan, help me out. Dragisevich. Dragisevich, and he is the author of the book, The Persuasive Actor, Rhetorical Power on the Contemporary Stage. And welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to, for you to invite me. I really appreciate it. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand. From headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems, for more information, please visit north-america.beardynamic.com and by Vocal Booth to Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit vocalboothtogo.com for more information. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission, to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics, along with free expert advice. Total sound control products from Oralex enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators. Well, we appreciate all the work that goes into this book. We're going to talk about that because uh, language is powerful. And uh, Milan, he's the uh, associate professor of theater at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And so you wrote this book. How long have you been teaching acting for? I would say probably around uh, 18 to 20 years. Wow. Okay. Because, you know, I see acting books and, you know, there's a lot of fluff out there. This is a beautiful book that you have. I mean, you really uh, took the time. I find that uh, there are not a lot of people who can break down uh, the verbal speech. You know, what goes into it? Why are we so enamored by it? I mean, people spend millions of dollars on commercials during the Super Bowl just to get it right or film. And so uh, how did you do this? Well, I was very fortunate, Michael, to have had some great mentors in my life who opened the door uh, to, the, to the rhetorical universe. And the more that door opened, the more I discovered this fascinating world that's, for the most part, hidden from us today. But classical antiquity had some secrets, uh, had some wisdom that we have forgotten. 
And that wisdom has just kind of fallen off to the side of the road. And so I went on a search, so to speak, to try to reclaim some of this wisdom, some, some uh, insights that students three, four, five, six, seven hundred years ago had about the spoken word and how to, how to speak it. And um, so the more I went on this search, the more I discovered, and it just became a fascinating journey. Uh, there's very little of this kind of training available to not just the American actor today, but to any citizen or orator or anybody who wants to stand in front of a group and speak persuasively. This is something that was valued for 2,500 years, uh, starting in the 4th, 5th century B.C., and I completely agree with that. I went online, as I was telling you beforehand, the interview, and uh, you put voice and acting, and your book is, is definitely different. I mean, there is a lot. We don't understand the nuances that go into vocal speech. Now, that could be for business. That could right. be for an actor. That could be for a voice actor. And uh, why is it so hard for people to break it down? And how did you do this? I mean, how did, what's the key? I think the key is to have a passion for to have a passion for communicating to have to see richness in language to see that you can actually we have a tremendous gift as human beings that through what we say as words we can actually change minds that's something that no other creatures can really do we have that ability and that ability was taught to students for for two millennia in the west and uh, that, I think it starts with the sense that you have the power, you have the inspiration to talk and move a group of people on any yes. subject. So I think that's where it started for me. I grew up speaking two languages uh, in the house. Uh, I was aware of language from a, from a very early age, and I listened for it. Um, I, 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 I'm fascinated by the properties of the spoken word, which can be applied not just for actors, but for anybody in their life who want to communicate strongly to a group of people. You have everything from, just as an example here, on page 15, the warning voice, the seductive voice. Uh, you know, we, we throw out so much every day, and we are in control of all these nuances. The thing is, is when we're asked to do it in, uh, in theater, acting, or voice work, or even business, it's like, wait, stop. Instead of, you know, wait, stop. I mean, exactly. where's, you know, and so it's, it's interesting. We do these things uh, and we do it, I guess, subconsciously or just automatically. And so uh, rather than freeze, uh, we have your book here, The Persuasive Actor, <laughs> Rhetorical Power on the Contemporary Stage, because we got to learn how to speak properly. So uh, these nuances, it, is it easy to break down? It requires, it is not difficult, but it requires practice on a daily basis. Don't forget, Michael, that uh, in Shakespeare's day, for instance, let's just take the Elizabethan period of England, students were speaking in the classroom. They were delivering language out loud. Paper was expensive. Nobody had paper to read from. They had to memorize and speak out loud. Uh, and so that kind of training started at the age of eight or nine years old. Hmm. Uh, we don't have that training at all today. Students are rarely asked to deliver a poem, a speech, anything out loud in the classroom because it's not asked of them in a traditional, let's say, educational setting. And so we, and so you might ask, well, what's the big deal? Uh, well, when you don't hear yourself speak, you actually do not have a chance to open up your personality. Uh, classical antiquity understood that in the act of speaking, bravely, openly, strongly in front of a group of people, yourself literally expanded. Uh, in, in, in a public setting like that. So they had secrets about this, starting with rhetorical training. They taught students riffs. 
Uh, I can make, make an analogy to music, like a musician might practice an A minor scale. Mm -hmm. uh, students would practice how to unleash an antithesis, where you, uh, where you bounce one phrase off another. As You, know, you can say, for instance, um, let me give you an example of that. I, I have a dream that one day my four children will grow up in a country where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Content of character against color of skin. That kind of, in rhetorical training, that was called an antithesis, uh, meaning it had a way of hooking the ear by playing opposites. And those kind of, those kind of trainings or skills, pre people would just practice, like a dancer practices moves in school all day in Shakespeare's day. And they became very adept at speaking and listening, which our culture has devalued. Oh, I completely. That's why I love your book, because <laughs> you you teach people to you know fall in love with with speaking once again. And uh, is it just me? I mean, I know now on television they certainly show the the quote unquote conversational voice, which is kind of like a vocal fry, a low type of yeah. voice. And, and and you mentioned in your book that you know the actors today are not really trained to put it into high gear to really do what the the, the classically trained actors can do. And uh, how do we suffer because of that? And do you like that conversational voice? Well, we've had enough of it. You know, it's been great for film and television. It's been the, it's been the predominant style for the last, gosh, 30, 40 years. Um, but I think, you know, the pendulum is going to start to swing back the other, other way. Uh, it's very, it's too conversational. It lacks energy, Michael. It yes. lacks vitality. It doesn't play with words. It doesn't lean on language in any evocative way. It's, you know, you could go out on the street corner here dialogue like you could in many uh, films and TV shows. So it, it's, it, it lacks the craft, I guess is, what I, is how I would put it. And all you have to do is to see how far it's gone. You know, we American actor training has kind of uh, paralleled that with an overemphasis in the last 60 to 70 years on psychological subtext where words don't even really matter. It's what's under the text, mm. it's the emotion lurking under the text. And all you have to do really is listen to, let's say, a 1940s uh, um, American movie, like a Betty Davis movie, and you'll be amazed as to how different that dialogue sounded. It crackled, it sparkled, it had wit. Uh, and that is often something just unheard of today, where we're, where the most dialogue is the words themselves are not very important. It's the size, the moody pauses, it's the emotion lurking under the words, but not the words themselves. There is one exception to that uh, that I found recently. Uh, there is a... Um, I think a cable television show that some of my students told me about called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, where uh, you have suddenly very witty dialogue being written again, where the words are sparkling. They're, they're actually enjoyable to listen to. They're, it's filled with wit. Uh, wit, a concept that's not taught <laughs> cool. Right. Uh, so um, so that I, I do think that human beings do have a hunger for a language, that they are going to, it, it comes out sometimes via slang and finding words. Uh, we now use the word chill for relax because it's more imagistic. It conjures a certain image. Yeah, I've noticed what you're saying, even on, I think it's like an IBM commercial or a tech commercial. They show right. a man who, you know, on a stage, no less, right? <laughs> and he's doing rapping. Right, that the best hip hop artists have a tremendous verbal arsenal. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're actually quite gifted in that, in their voracious passion for speaking. And some of the, and I have actually, and I use some examples in my book uh, uh, from Zell Miller, for instance, who's a very gifted poet 
uh, and theater hip hop artists. So I cover the terrain. Usually when heightened language is described in a performance class, Michael, it's almost always separated from contemporary times where it's only, let's say, like Shakespeare or something long ago. And I certainly value, I was trained as a Shakespearean performer and I certainly value that uh, greatly. But what the book does is it brings it also into the 21st century and says there are verbally adventurous plays, writers, speakers out there today that we can harness the power of the spoken word again. You know, we have to play those old uh, Alexander Scorby when we listen to the Bible, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, the Bible has some tremendous use of, uh, you know, I use, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have studied Milton's Paradise Lost when I was an undergraduate English major at UCLA for an entire semester. Uh, and uh, Paradise Lost is just one of those masterpieces that you do, you can spend the entire semester on. And actually, I use examples of rhetorical structure in the book from Milton's Paradise Lost. So uh, there aren't too many books, Michael, that go from Paradise Lost to hip hop theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But I mean, yeah. you know, in getting back to Alexander Scorby, I mean, the way that he delivered it, a classically trained actor. Uh, the beauty behind it. And of course, you mentioned that again on, uh, well, page 14. I want people to get your book. Again, we're with uh, Milan, and I always mess up the last name. Dragisevich. Dragisevich. Right. All right. You, I'm, I don't think I would make it as a, probably fire me from your repertoire, your theater. <laughs> oh, you have a good voice. You actually oh, have a good you. speaking voice. Well, I appreciate that. The book is called The Persuasive Actor, Rhetorical Power on the Contemporary Stage. We're learning how to talk here and, uh, and the beauty behind words. Everyone is different. It's like a fingerprint, right? The way they, everyone speaks differently, but we don't learn how to harness that. We usually don't. Um, uh, again, this is a lost art form. This was uh, rhetoric, grammar, and logic comprised the major three categories of education in the West for 2,000 years. Those were the three pillars of education, was rhetoric, grammar, and logic. And we have uh, been, dis we are disconnected, untethered from that tradition. And where, we, where, where past centuries would care about the quality of voice, the rhythm in which you speak, the kind of sentence structure you use, the kind of imagery you bring to your speaking, uh, we have not, it's not so much that we don't care about it. We don't, we aren't aware of it to care about it. Right. So we are a step removed. But when you show, and I work with a lot of young people in, um, in, at, in the university setting, but when you open that door to the rhetorical universe, they are fascinated. It's something they've always felt was there. And they actually uh, are thrilled to start exploring that universe. But you have to kind of open the door. And I was lucky to have that door open for me. And I think uh, there, there is uh, generations of students ahead now who will value this work. Yeah, they always teach us, how, you know, in school, I, I blame all those teachers, honestly, because, you know, they teach you how to memorize things in a right. boring way. And then you yeah. look at the people who make it in this life, right? And whether it be business people or actors or just people who are assertive, what do they all have in common? You know, they know how to talk and get the attention of someone and use language. And I think that... Uh, that's a travesty. Everyone from a very early age should learn uh, assertiveness and language, how to use the language because you need it in life. And it's amazing. I think part of the frustration is people just aren't being heard today. They don't know how to really emote. I would very much agree. I, I, that's a great insight. I, I feel that um, there's sometimes their, their voice has never really been unleashed. They've never given themselves permission to explore the boundaries of their own speaking. 
just to get up in front of a group of people. doesn't matter what it is. It could be the PTA. It could be a church. It could be a street corner. It could be a political rally or it could be on stage. Yes. Just to get up and hear your voice move people. Mm -hmm. It's a profound discovery because you're suddenly seeing what you're capable of doing because you're getting immediate feedback from the audience, whether it's applause, catcalls, disagreement. You are moving things around you with your voice. And for most people, they haven't had that experience or they're too timid. You know, you can go through, Michael, you could sit in a university classroom today in the United States for four years and get a degree. You can have a good GPA and never have to open your mouth. Hmm. Never. You can just sit silently, <laughs> silently in the back of the class, take good That's notes, right. write good essays, and you can get a, you know, you'll get your bachelor's degree in something and it'll be even with a good GPA. Right. You won't ever re be really required to engage with your own self and the people around you, which only happens, by the way, when you start speaking. You look at the person who comes out of that corner office and uh, they have a loud, verbose <laughs> voice in, in the corporate world. And then and then all the other people just stay quiet, you know, on the computers. And so uh, yeah. nothing to all this, but you break it down. Uh, I don't think our audience knows in uh, the way they should that you, you go to meticulous lengths to break it down <laughs> so that we can actually understand. And that's where your book is different. Tell us about the rhetorical universe. How do you define that? Well, Aristotle defined it, his famous definition as the art of persuasion by words. And that art form was uh, pitched high for 2,500 years in the West. It started in uh, ancient Greece in the 4th to 5th century BC, where for the first time uh, schools were opened, where young students starting at the age of seven or eight were taught how to construct and speak effectively, strongly, persuasively, and exercises were developed, names were given to certain kinds of uh, techniques by the early Greeks. That passed on to the Romans later, and, the Ro and it lived all the way through Shakespeare's time for the next 2,000 years. And then it just started to fall away in, uh, uh, in, from around the 19th century. And uh, we can talk about that. It's a whole different subject as to why it did. We'll have you uh, back. <laughs> yeah. What, is, what it left, though, was a huge vacuum. Uh, and, and that is the vacuum that we are suddenly discovering today and that, that the voice can move people, that you can persuade, that the voice is not just a window dressing. It's not just icing on the cake. It is the cake often. What you say is, the, in fact, and the words you use, the specific kinds of words you use are, in fact, the idea itself. We have this myth that says in the United States, well, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> well, I would say this, it's the thought packaged in words, in specific words that count. Yes. How amazing is it that just with your mouth that you can move mm -hmm. things like you talked about Martin Luther King and, and uh, I mean, we just watch it and we thirst for it on television, but the fact that we can do something with it, with our own voice and create uh, action and change and, and nobody teaches you'd, you know, how to do that. One thing I think, I also think pastors should buy your book. <laughs> I think so. I actually, I very, would very much agree with that. Yeah, we, there's a section where you talk about the Garden of Eden and I keep thinking that if any a book should have a power with the, the spoken word, you know, it's the Bible. And then you hear these pastors in monotone and you right. wonder, why aren't people going to church? Well, I, yes, it's, um, it's all part of uh, that background that I described where people have not been encouraged to use their voice in a much more evocative way. I think, you know, I think the Bible is just so rich with so many different 
usages of language and imagery and ideas that it really requires uh, a kind of almost training to, to speak it out loud. Uh, uh, not in any formal way, but it requires, I would say, first and foremost, a courageous spirit and an uh, inspired spirit to, to speak it uh, yeah. that will take you quickly out of monotone. Uh, do you, I mean, people in Shakespeare's day, again, I have to go back, referred to going to hear a play. Today we, see, we say we're going to see a play. Uh, but going to hear a play means that you're ready to listen because the language and the people around you, the society has put value on speaking. And uh, that is the huge shift that has occurred is we've gone away from, we're very sophisticated visually uh, today, much more than any, in, in any time in human history because we have electronica that presents us with a million images in one minute. But we have lost that hearing. We have become very weak. It's a muscle that we have not lifted. And because we haven't lifted it, and the hearing and the listening is not at, you said it's hard to communicate a thought because people aren't listening. Mm -hmm. Listening is, on the, is the other side of speaking. They're, on, they're two sides of the same coin. And one helps the other. So uh, in terms of any text, whether you're a preacher, whether you're an actor, whether you're just a concerned citizen, I think it would be really amazing if somebody who didn't even view themselves as someone capable of, of standing up in front of a, a group of people just took a speech, just to practice, any speech, from history, from theater, it doesn't matter, from the Bible, doesn't matter from what, and just practiced it and delivered it to a group of people, I think they would be amazed as to the results. And they're going to improve. I have a little light bulb went on in my head. Yeah. That where, yeah. you know, why not go back to those older movies, the black and white film or, you know, stage. And uh, even, you know, when I go on YouTube, I'll watch some of these Jonathan Winters, what a, a masterful communicator. And probably if you look at Johnny Carson and all the others. Oh, absolutely. Gosh, a lot of people miss uh, personalities like that today. Uh, we, you know, those... I don't mean to imply that everything of the past is somehow better. I'm not trying to wallow in nostalgia. But what I am saying is that there is forgotten wisdom that mm -hmm. we can reconnect and apply it to our own uh, complex contemporary times. That I think we are in need of that today. We, we have kind of drained uh, language dry. And there's nowhere to go but up from here. Oh, I completely agree with that. I was talking about my wife and, you know, why, and you talked about the visuals. They have that down, right? Oh, <laughs> my the, God. The crazy That's one of the great secrets. <laughs> one of the great secrets. Imagine, imagine, Michael, we are the first, we are, it's only in the last, what, 100 years of yeah. human history that we have access to electronic imagery. Uh, uh, but for going back to Homer, which is way before classical Greece, human beings had to lift that weight of imagery and they were taught how to bring evocative images into the room there was a speaker lysias l-y-s-a-i-s that was renowned for the ability to speak his uh to speak an image so powerfully and evocatively that the listener the audience had the sensation that they were seeing it in the room before their eyes now imagine that quality that somebody is describing let's say i don't know an ocean a uh, whatever a busy street scene that you have the impression that you're seeing it. Mm. That was a, that was that's a technique that you, that was called inargia in classical times because there was nothing to plug in. There was no electronics that could do it for you. So they had to work that muscle. And that's there's a whole chapter on that in the book about imagery and description. It's a long loss. It's one of the great secrets of classical antiquity. It's, and it's, it's funny how we feed onto it, how it really, um, it affects the fabric of the human condition to actually be yes. part of that. How come all these great movies with, uh, 
Emma, what's her name? Emma, not Emma Watson. Yeah, Emma Thompson. That's it. <laughs> and I'm thinking the other man too, who is in the Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Anthony what's his? Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. That's right. There was so much more witty humor and uh, or, or wit, and the way that there was a slow scene. And my wife, we talked to each other. She said, "Are, are these commercials when we watch television? Are they going a bit fast for you?" And I said, "Oh yeah. I mean, it seems like." There's no real dialogue. It's like cut here, explosion, yeah. cut here, explosion. And, right. you know, it hypes you up so much and uh, gets the serotonin. I don't know. I just, <laughs> and it, it, for someone with ADHD, I can't take it. I mean, I go crazy. I need, I need you know, this dialogue. And I think human beings respond to it. And I, I hope, as you're saying, that we go back to, uh, to really have an appreciation for dialogue and wit. Do you think the West Wing would ever make it today by today's standards? I mean, it's like uh, oh, our, our attention span, yeah. hang around with all the, the wit that went into uh, to, yeah. to making that. Probably not because people want, uh, people, uh, the attention span is, re- is really shrinking today. You know, and it's, you know, the gadgets that we surround ourselves with is kind of helping that process of shortening of attention because we want quick answers. You can look up anything on Google search. You can, everything is done in milliseconds today. And <laughs> it has affected our, our, our patients. Our lim- our, the, it has put kind of dampers or, you know, boundaries on the level of our patients and we're, because we're very impatient. Milan, want- I want to ask you something. What, what is there, uh, I'm really putting you on the spot. Is there an yeah. exercise that you and I could do or that we can act out that would show one of the uh, points that you make in your book, because I mean, and first of all, do you have this on audio book as well or no? That has not been done yet. The book just came out about five, six months ago. There is no audio yet of the book. Uh, that's something I would probably want to speak to my publisher about. Uh, but I do give a lot of encouragement in the, books, in the book and show people how they can practice this on their own in each chapter. Um, so, so while we don't have the audio, there is a lot of kind of, I, I would hope kind of gentle mentoring throughout the book. Oh, absolutely. There is. I mean, that's why, that's why I love the book. <laughs> it goes yeah. to great examples that you can, I just want to know if there was any, you know, kind of fun, uh, exercise that you, you know, kind of, uh, roll out when you tell people about speech or to have how to fall in love with speech or just a one example that comes yeah. to mind. When you well, one, one of the, one of the, there's a chapter in, uh, uh, I think it's chapter uh, two called uh, where it deals with the amplification of language, how you yes. can increase and power what I call rev up and power up language. And one of the techniques that, uh, Shakespeare studied that was a lot of fun is, is it was a, it was a rhetorical technique called oxesis, A-U-X-E-S-I-S. And what was a fancy Greek term for taking an, um, replacing an ordinary word with an extraordinary word. So let's say a car, ordinary word. And I would ask my students, let's come up with an extraordinary version of car. And somebody would say industrial chariot. Okay. So that's, <laughs> That's em- em- embrace. That's substituting an ordinary word with yeah. something extraordinary. And Shakespeare's characters, Shakespeare's uh, whole way of writing was to find the extraordinary. And that's a fun exercise to do. Take any any mundane item in the house or that you see around you that we use every day, an ordinary word, and find an extraordinary parallel for it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, that does. So you know, you could take uh, you know. Uh, and anything uh, you can a cup of coffee is an ordinary phrase, but you can find an extraordinary phrase for for to substitute for coffee. You know, a jolt machine. I'm just now improvising. Anything, and you can say, well, what does that do? 
Well, it makes us, number one, suddenly aware of language. If you walked into a party, here's a good example, Michael. If you walked into a party and let's say, you know, people don't smoke cigarettes anymore and that's good. But let's say you, you did smoke a cigarette and you didn't have a, a match on you. And you came up to a well-dressed party goer. And instead of asking for light or a match, you said, excuse me, ma'am, uh, do you have by any chance a stick of Promethean theft? <laughs> Now, they may think you're crazy. They may think, well, that's so pretentious. But one thing that has happened in the room is that you've introduced consciousness about language. They have to actually listen to what you just said and figure it out. Uh, Shakespeare wrote a whole play about this called Love's Labor's Lost, in which nobody says anything straightforward. Everybody, it's a comedy. Everybody's looking for that total... Oh, nobody just talks about, uh, uh, there's a character who, called Holofernes who spends the entire play looking for extraordinary words for ordinary items. Wow. Uh, the sky is not the sky. It's like, you know, the expanse of heaven. It's, it's uh, the earth is terra something. And it's just, everything is just substituted with oxesis. And it creates laughs. It's funny. It, it, it makes us aware of, of the joy of just expression. You know, the Promethean theft for a fire, you have, to, you have to suddenly in your mind, in a millisecond, kind of, you, conjure, you have to conjure up an image of Prometheus and stealing fire from the gods and bringing it to earth. And you have to juxtapose that against this simple mundane act of lighting a cigarette. And it, becomes, and it creates humor. We got to do part two. We, we got to. I mean, there's, yeah. there's just a lot there, you know? And, uh, and think about that. Think about that, Michael, that, that conversation could actually be witty and humorous. And that you're, you know, the more you actually engage people that way, you're reminding them that it's really actually great to be alive. I, I totally agree. It's like little kids tell us a story and we want stories today. Storytelling Absolutely. is big. And it's funny, if you, you know, kids know, uh, senior citizens know when they're hearing something that's uh, stale and old and boring. And, and yeah. that's just not who we are. We want to strive for the heights and, and the greatness of power of the voice. And uh, that's our special guest, Milan Drazi. <laughs> Milan <laughs> You know, there's a Russian, there was a Russian doctor who, who, who met me once and said, you know, I'm just going to say Greg is savage. Because that's the way, that's the way we're going to, he said, that's the way we would pronounce your name in Russia. So I said, okay, Greg is savage works too. I have some editing to do, you know, but the persuasive actor is the name of the book. Please, if you're a voice actor, get it, an actor or someone who's in business. And please, if you're a pastor, buy this book because you'll be a better speaker. It'll be worth it. Uh, the persuasive actor, rhetorical power on the contemporary stage. We thank you for being on the program. Well, it's just been a delight. I'm, I'm just really honored that you asked me to participate. Thank you so much. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand, from headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bearedynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth To Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit VocalBoothToGo.com for more information. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission 
to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics along with free expert advice. Total Sound Control products from Oralex enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators.